With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. This episode, we'll be talking Rashford offside, El Clasico, George and Tammy, paywalls, pro-rel, U.S. Women's National Team 2023 kickoff, Pulisic, Club World Cup, LA Galaxy protest, the Klopp drop, soccer moms, and so much more. But first joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you doing on this Monday, January 16th in the year 2023? Doing well. Welcome back to Los Angeles. Thank you very much. Uh, as I mentioned last week, uh, I was in Philadelphia, the great city of Philadelphia. Wonderful American history there and wonderful history of hosting uh, conferences and soccer conferences. And again, the uh, the, uh, the coaching um, conference was held there and uh, United Coaches Association Conference. I don't know the official name uh, for it. But anyway, it's this yearly get together of coaches from around the country and around the world. Wonderful panels and wonderful exhibitions, people with booths as far as the eye can see, uh, track suits and sambas as far as the, well, I don't think people do sambas anymore, but you know what I mean. It's, uh, you, are, you are in the belly of the beast, uh, as it were, especially relative to what a lot of people are screaming and yelling about uh, nowadays of this, um, this ecosystem that exists right now. Well, this was it. I loved it because it was wonderful to see so many people and faces that I hadn't seen in so long. But also just just to talk about the game with uh, with people that come from it from all different angles. But everyone's kind of in this soccer tent and obviously a lot of uh, coaches. And so I had a good time. Saw a lot of a lot of people, including my former coach 35 years ago, Bob Riasso, the great Bob Riasso, head coach of Rutgers University. Thankfully, took the call from my father, uh, who said, I got this kid. He's an okay student, and uh, he's a pretty good soccer player. Will you at least meet him? And we drove the 16 hours out to uh, exit nine off the turnpike there in New Jersey. And he looked at me and said, well, I can uh, invite you to preseason, and I can get you into the agriculture school. And I said, well, I don't have anything else. And so sign me up. We drove back the 16 hours. I packed. I came back to Rutgers. My dad kicked me kicked me out there uh, on exit nine and uh, said, good luck. Barely, barely slowed the car down. And the rest is history, as they say. But I got to see uh, Bob Riasso again. And uh, he, has, he has not changed. But, you know, you, you come in contact with people that changed your life. And he certainly did. Um, it's cool to hang out and, uh, and uh, shoot the shit together with him and so many others. That agricultural degree, has that served you well in life? In so, your garden there when you're working? <laughs> so people ask me that uh, about the agri- agriculture school. So 
it was called it is called Cook College anyway. It's it's gone through a bunch of different name changes, but it was the only way I was going to get into uh, a school and the only way I was going to get into Rutgers. Having said that, I always wanted to major in English and music. You were not allowed to do that at, at the agriculture school. I'll never forget taking beef and sheep production. I swear to God, I kid you not, this was the name of a course. And, you know, there were real serious people that were there for the ag part of that education. I was not. Uh, I wanted to major in English, uh, but I had to take credits. And so <laughs> I'll never forget. Thankfully, uh, the soccer gods were smiling upon me in that the coach, I mean, the coach, the teacher of this course, the professor, was, turned, up, uh, turned out to be a soccer fan. The final was 32 pages long. The bovine and ovine discussion that went on week after week after week was lost in me. And at one point during the course, the professor asked to see me after class and said, listen, I, I know this is not for you. I recognize this. If you just sit in the back and don't bust my balls and don't do anything stupid, okay, I'm going to help you get through this course. And bless him. Uh, I don't know if he's still around, but bless him because ultimately I did find a way past and get the credits for that uh, for that coast uh, for that class. And it's one of the few classes that I actually have a, a memory of. So he made an impression. I have a restaurant recommendation. Oh, okay. What do you got? Friday night, I had an incredible meal. Uh, this Argentinian steakhouse called Carlitos Gardel on Melrose Avenue in West Hollywood. I went there for my buddy Dan Houtman's birthday. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the better meals I've had in a very long time. Everything delicious, appetizers, empanadas, uh, chorizo. And then we all got steak, obviously, the sides, creamed corn, dessert. I had flan, everything delicious, top-notch, great ambiance, terrific service, uh, high marks all the way. Wow. I, I know my last recommendation, Bestia, uh, didn't pan well, out so well for you. but It didn't turn out in terms of the portions, but the actual food was very, very good. So, uh, so, they, so this is a two thumbs up for you again. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Good. I just want to make sure. You know. All right. Well, I will check it out, and maybe others will check it out. Uh, have you watched anything, my friend? Uh, I have been on a movie barrage the last couple of weeks okay. in preparation for the Oscars. Uh, we can talk more about this when we get closer to the Oscars, but I've seen The Banshees of Inishirin. All right. I've seen All Quiet on the Western Front. Mm -hmm. I've seen The Fablemans. I've seen Tar. Um, How's The Fablemans thing? Any good? I enjoyed it. Okay. I enjoyed it. That's, that's one I haven't seen. I even saw Elvis on the flight back from Fort Lauderdale okay. to L.A. I saw Glass Onion. And after we're, we're done taping today, I might go see this Argentina 1985, which is a movie I've that might heard, win for best foreign film. I've heard it's very good. Um, all right. Uh, let's see. I, I don't have much other than uh, George and Tammy. The uh, I don't know. It's about six episodes. And it goes through... Uh, the relationships and the ups and downs of the great George Jones and uh, Tammy Wynette, two country legends, and all of the um, trials and tribulations <laughs> and just craziness that was. I mean, he's you know he was a raging alcoholic, and you know that they they loved each other, and uh, it goes through all the ups and downs. Like I said, and there, it, there's. It, Sometimes when you have too many episodes for a story like that, and I think this was too many episodes, especially when it's a music type of biopic here, I, I know that they were musicians, but at a certain point, it just became too much music, if, if it possibly can be. And I love I loved their music. I love their music. And obviously, it's a huge part of the story. And they were almost communicating with each, with each other through the music and the music in and of itself kept them together at times when in any other circumstance and situation um they would have you know run very very fast their uh, their separate ways but at times it just it plodded along 
with the musical interludes, um, even though I know it was necessary to show them singing. But uh, well acted and uh, certainly interesting from uh, a musical doc. It's not a musical bio doc type of uh, thing. Uh, Ready to light this candle, my friend? Let's do it. Okay, where do you want to start here? Let's, uh, let's, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff, and we, we have a jam-packed show for, uh, for you today, but where would you like to start? Let's start with the U.S. Women's National Team. Okay. They have their first games of 2023 coming up, and we can use that to set up the whole year for them, which is a big one, obviously, a World Cup year. So they will face World Cup co-host New Zealand twice here in New Zealand, which is where they'll play all three of their group games at the World Cup. Yep. In February, they have the She Believes Cup. They'll face Canada, Japan, and Brazil in that. The World Cup uh, comes your way in July. And August, live on Fox Sports, the U.S. going for an unprecedented three-peat. No country's ever won three straight World Cups in the men's or women's side. So as we begin 2023 here for the women, what are your overall thoughts? My overall thoughts are that this is still a team in transition and yet six months away from the most important part and really the defining part of any national team coach and national team. There are still question marks as to whether they can transition with uh, the new players that they have, uh, the new coach they have relative to a uh, a World Cup, and not just the players, but the, the transfer of that winning mentality. And does that translate ultimately into yet another World Cup? And as you mentioned, a historic and unprecedented type of, uh, of victory. Um, you know, there's still plenty of usual suspects even in this roster for uh, for New Zealand, and I think this is great for them get to get the lay of the land. Uh, in uh, in New Zealand, where you mentioned all of their group stage games are going to be played. And look, the U.S. women's national team in a World Cup, nobody's ever worried about them getting out of the group. But an understanding of where you're going to play and being in country, I think, is uh, I think is important in the men's and women's game relative to a, a World Cup. You still got the Alyssa Nairs, who I think is going to continue on in goal. Becky Sovereign in the back there, probably the final go around for her. But then you have Naomi Gurma, uh, who's coming on strong. Uh, Sofia Huerta, uh, these types of players that are making a case. Uh, midfield, still populated with the Harans and uh, Lavelles and Muses uh, and uh, and Sullivans that we have seen uh, seen in the past. Uh, you know, up top, uh, you know, Trinity Rodman, the 20-year-old, I think that's going to be interesting. Lynn Williams back into the picture. Alex Morgan uh, there. Uh, Katarina Macario still waiting in the wings. Hopefully uh, she recovers enough from the injury to make a run. Uh, and by all accounts, uh, she she will. And that'll be interesting and set up some good competition uh, up top. Uh, Noah Alyssa Thompson, who just was drafted number one uh, by Angel City, the 18-year-old uh, phenom. And we did see her appear in the game against uh, England. And look, Megan Rapinoe will still be in the mix going forward in these types of uh, players. Kelly O'Hara uh, possibly. Uh, from the old guard and that new guard. Ultimately, I think that what this, the success of this team is going to come down to their ability to find a way to break down teams. And we've seen this in the, in the men's game too, to find a way to break down teams that understand what they're about, have come to the, the recognition that they are just going to absorb pressure and can do it very, very well. And in doing so can stifle and frustrate the U.S., but can they find ways in very compact, difficult type of situations to break down teams that are going to try to frustrate them? If you glance at that roster, you might wonder, where's Mallory Pugh? She's on there, but she's now Mallory Swanson. Exactly. She got married in December to uh, Major League Baseball star Dansby Swanson, formerly of the Atlanta Braves, who just signed a big free agent contract with the Chicago Cubs. So Dansby's got a lot going on in his life, a marriage, a big free agent uh, deal. But yeah, Mallory uh, Swanson now. So is she took on his there. name then. She took his name. Right, she right? took his. Are you okay with that? How, how you find that to be an archaic. No, I uh, love it. I love it. Uh, it's wonderful. 
you know, better do it or don't. I don't care, but you know, it's great, wonderful. Mallory Swanson. So on the back of her jersey, it will be Swanson now uh, going forward and forever. Well, not forever, but well, hopefully forever. But for now, we're going to call her Mallory uh, Swanson. It uh, is a shame, no Sophia Smith. She just yep. uh, was voted uh, U.S. Female Player of the Year, uh, but she's out with an injury. Megan Rapinoe out as well. But as you mentioned, no shortage of big names. And you, you talked about the uh, group stage at the World Cup. Uh, uh, the opponents there, Vietnam, the Netherlands, which is a rematch of the 2019 final, and then a team yet to be determined. It'll be either Portugal, Thailand, or Cameroon. You might recall the U.S. squeaked by Thailand in their opening match of the last World Cup. Good chance it's going to be Portugal, I would think. I mean, that, that's where the, the safe money is, but uh, but you never know. Again, this is an exp expanded uh, World Cup. We'll know, by the way, that third group uh, by February 22nd, the third uh, group team for the U.S. But again, getting out of the group is... It's, it's not even it's it's an it's an afterthought when it comes to the U.S. Uh, women's national team uh, going forward. Um, by the way, the timing of this World Cup because we always talk about that, and you know, people were up in the middle of the night uh, during the uh, Qatar World Cup here recently. There will be games in the middle of the night, but there will also be games in kind of prime time-ish. For example, the first two games of the group stage for the U.S. actually are going to happen at 9 p.m. Um, Eastern time. So that's a nice kind of evening delight, if you will, when it comes to the U.S. Women's National Team in the World Cup. But we'll be watching these uh, these games and uh, making some, you know, uh, assessments as to where they are right now, because it's gonna, the summer's going to come quick. And these upcoming friendlies against New Zealand available on HBO Max. We went over the uh, talent in our last uh, podcast, Kyle Martino and company. So looking forward to that. You can watch the games. And then as long as you're on, you can fire up a movie afterwards, perhaps the Banshees of Inishirin, make a whole watch, night out of it. You can watch all of them. And later in the pod, we're going to talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, the the new world of broadcasting soccer out there and uh, the brave new world that we uh, that we are in. Uh, other news when it comes to uh, the national team. I mentioned Sophia Smith mm -hmm. uh, won U.S. Female Player of the Year. Well deserved. Tyler Adams oh, yep. won for Male Player of the Year, also well deserved. He captained the U.S. at the World Cup. I think was widely regarded as the U.S.'s best player in that tournament. Won a trophy with Leipzig earlier in the year and has done very well in the Premier League since joining Leeds United, playing under Jesse Marsh there. So I don't think you can have any complaints about I don't this think, election. Uh, I don't think so at all. And it's interesting because... You know, when we prepare, prepare for World Cups, oftentimes they will ask us, you know, who should we be looking for? And I think for the most part, the majority of us talked about Tyler Adams, and yet he, he lived up to it in the World Cup. And that doesn't always happen, Mossy, as, as we know. But he lived up to it in terms of his actual play, and people could recognize how important he was for the U.S. team and is going to be uh, for the U.S. team going forward. And then, you know, his, his wonderful, um, you know, incredibly thoughtful and articulate way in which he responded uh, before that Iran game and, uh, you know, kind of led the team in that way in his press conferences. So, you know, I think he had a wonderful World Cup, but this is not just about the World Cup. This is about the year. And I think that I, 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 I find it hard to argue about anybody else relative to the impact and you know, the, the face, if you will, of U.S. soccer from the men's side right now. It has to be uh, Tyler Adams. So well-deserved for, uh, for both players. And, you know, this is, uh, these are players that we're going to find in the next World Cup this next summer and certainly in 26 when it comes to Tyler Adams. I was going through the uh, list of past winners. Mm -hmm. uh, trivia question for you. Who won this award in 1995? 1995. That would be back in the 1900s. Who cares about that? Who, who, would that? Would that be yours truly? Is that... Alexi Lalas. Oh my goodness! They'll give it to anybody. Boy, they were they were scraping the bottom of the barrel back then, Mossy. Thank goodness we have moved on to a, a Tyler Adams level of 
uh, of quality in terms of player and person. So, boy, there's no accounting for bad taste. Uh, Christian Pulisic has won this award three times. Uh, his future at club level very much in flux right now. Graham Potter, speaking about Pulisic, said there's no chance of him leaving in this window. He wasn't going to leave anyway, but he's definitely not now, given the fact that he's injured. He's going to be out at least a couple of months. But in the meantime, Chelsea continue to make moves that impact Pulisic. This Todd Bullock can't sit still for five minutes. Right. They've already acquired Christopher Nkunku for next season, Joel Felix on loan for the remainder of this campaign, and then Chelsea go out and sign Ukrainian winger Mikhailo Mudrik for a fee that with bonuses could, could get up to 100 million pounds. Uh, he's this player that Arsenal had been linked with. Yeah. He wanted to go to Arsenal, but Arsenal were balking at paying that price. They were trying to negotiate the fee down a bit. Chelsea swoop in and say, we'll pay it, no problem. They also gave him a mammoth contract. So this, this move has massive Pulisic implications. Even if he doesn't leave in this window, I think in the summer, he's probably going to have to go. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when, when Potter says there was, there's no chance of him leaving. No, um, he'll be out past that date that they've given, and there was never any consideration about him leaving anyway. I find that a little strange because everybody there there has to be a consideration unless Potter came in and just, you know, along with management, believed that this guy was too important to even talk to anybody about. But to your point now, I mean, there's a lot of new talent that comes in, and that new talent is going to play. Okay, this isn't the new talent that they're signing to loan out in the way that Chelsea have done in the past. This is new talent that they're bringing in to challenge and to be, you know, the leaders going forward. And they need it. And so, by the way, financial fair play and, you know, all this kind of stuff, just just go buy more talent. And this Todd Bowley, I know from the moment he arrived, the English media has been dry, dying to portray him as this rube American who doesn't know what he's doing and is just throwing money around nilly willy. Um and I don't know, the jury's still out on it. I, I know the argument that better to have an owner that spends than one who doesn't spend. And hey, Chelsea are struggling, so why not try to improve the team? But as you always say, you want to feel like there's a plan. And I'm not quite certain here with Chelsea. It, they're a bit all over the place. They did sign this young French defender, Benoit Badiashil, who made his debut. We'll, we'll talk about Chelsea's game in the next segment. We played very well, so that's a signing that who knows might work out. But it just seems like they're throwing a lot of money around here, and I'm kind of wondering what's the overall plan. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are there are those out there that believe that as long as you're spending money, you're safe in terms of criticism, and that's it. You can hedge your bets with that, absolutely. But then there also comes a point, especially when you're talking about a super club, that you know even with the change of ownership is still spending a tremendous amount of money. Then the assessment, because if you're always going to spend money, that's fine. But then the assessment has to be, but are you spending it well? And is it translating into results? Is it translating into good business going forward? And that's where I think the, the, the jury is, is still out. Don't get me wrong. If I'm a, if I'm a fan of Chelsea, and even if I'm not a fan of Chelsea, I want, I want teams spending. It's not my money. So go ahead, spend until your heart's content. And it may, it may work out or it may not work out uh, now. But I, I still think it. You know, spending bad money is still better than spending no money at all when you are a fan and you equate money with ambition and you equate money with belief and support of your club. Speaking of Premier League clubs spending money, Aston Villa in the news, uh, they look set to splash $22 million on Chicago Fire's teenage Colombian forward John Duran. Uh, if this deal is confirmed, it would tie the second biggest outgoing transfer in MLS history. 
equaling the amount that Bayern paid Vancouver for Alfonso Davies, uh, trailing only the $26 million that Newcastle paid Atlanta United for Miguel Almiron. Uh, so, you know, we talk about MLS uh, signing young South American players. Part of the appeal is they've been selling that they can serve as a bridge to Europe. So from a proof of concept perspective, this is actually a deal that uh, folks in MLS seem to be celebrating. MLS is the only league, by the way, that can celebrate incoming transfers and outgoing transfers as evidence of progress. It kind of occupies a unique place yes. in the transfer market right now. Yeah, I mean, but this one is really interesting because, unfortunately, because of the irrelevance uh, of Chicago Fire, this one is strange because it just looks like that the Chicago Fire is a way station, <laughs> you know, uh, because, you know, Gaga Slonina for $15 million to Chelsea, uh, and now we see this transfer. Look, in terms of return on investment, they paid $2 million, whatever it was for them, the Chicago Fire. This is incredible to be able to flip this, if you will, and for this amount of money or potentially up to, you know, $22 million. That is, that is incredible return. And so well done for them with the identification of the player, the ability to woo that player, the ability to get a pretty good, not a pretty good, an incredible price at that point, and now to be able to flip it. But, you know, with Miguel Almiron, you're looking at an MLS Cup. You're looking at fundamentally changing the way that people think about your team. In that case, it was an expansion team, so it was establishing from that moment. And so you got the value of the player on the field that expanded and helped your brand. In that case, it was Atlanta United. Chicago is not getting anything relative to their brand other than the pat on the back for them doing good business. This doesn't necessarily, and look, I, I know you can take that money and put it back into Chicago. So if you do take that money and now you become relevant because you've had uh, this good business here, okay, fine. But this is where it's a little bit different because it's specifically of, uh, coming from Chicago. But it doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't change the fact that this is really, really, this is good business. And from a league perspective, having players that are coming to MLS, that are using it as a platform to show their wares, and then moving on in an incredible way from a business perspective, that is that proof of concept that you want. And it's what a lot of people have, uh, have been talking about. I just wish that Chicago got more than money out of it. It's good to have another example because MLS has been having to live off Miguel Amiron for mm -hmm. a while. Tati Casanos was a bit of a failure in that regard. The fact that they couldn't get any European club to meet NYCFC's asking price and City Football Group had to step in. He was dead set on going to Europe, so they just moved him to another one of their clubs, Girona. Now, if he plays well at Girona and, and gets a big transfer to a bigger European club, MLS will have been directly indirectly responsible for that, but you still, you wanted that move to be him going straight from NYCFC to a bigger yep. European club for, for a big number. It didn't happen, but you do get that here with Duran. So yeah, we'll yeah, see. And I, know, I don't want to poo-poo this, this deal or these, these, uh, these types of deals because they are, I think in, in, in the greater scheme of things, these are good and these are good images to have. And this is a good message to send, to send out there. I'm just, you know, like I said, I want to, I want Instead of just being a way station, I want it to be a place in which you leave your mark. Nobody's, nobody's going to remember Duran other than his price tag. <laughs> uh, the Seattle Sounders getting ready to compete in the Club World Cup. Here we go. The draw for that competition occurred on Friday. From the moment Seattle won the CONCACAF Champions League, all anybody in MLS circles has been talking about is the prospect of facing Real Madrid. That, that's the big payoff here. Right. An MLS team playing a competitive match against Real Madrid with the whole world watching. 
And I've been saying, hold your horses on that. First, Seattle has to win a quarterfinal match. And over the years, that's been a 50-50 proposition for Mexican clubs. And then depending on the draw, they might have to go through Flamengo as well. One of the hurdles was cleared on Friday because Seattle was placed in the same side of the bracket as Real Madrid. So if they win their quarterfinal, they would face Real Madrid in the semis. Seattle in the quarterfinals will face either Al-Ali of Egypt or Auckland City. Um, Winnable games. You'd rather it be Auckland City. Al-Ali have some pedigree. They've been in this competition a lot, so more experience. But still, they would be certainly beatable as well. Uh, that match, uh, February 4th in Tangier. And then if Seattle wins that, February 7th in Rabat, they would take on reigning European champions Real Madrid. By the way, Morocco, uh, there's something in the water over there. Men's and women's. Uh, and, you know, they're just, they're crushing it when it comes to the game. So the Club World Cup, it's usually the six regional champions and then the domestic champion of the host nation. But in this case, Wydad Casablanca, the Moroccan side, they're not only the Moroccan champions, but they won the African Champions League. So that slot ended up going to the runners-up in the African Champions League, which is Al-Ali. So that's the only reason they're in it. Uh, in terms of the rest of the field, uh, Flamengo on the other side of the bracket, they will face either Wydad Casablanca or Al-Hilal, uh, Saudi Arabian side. They are the arch rivals of the club Cristiano Ronaldo just signed for Al-Nasser. Al-Hilal feature several players that were on that Saudi Arabian World Cup team, including your boy Salem Al-Dasari, who scored in the win over Argentina. Saudi Arabia, you might recall, the only team to beat Argentina in this last World Cup, amazingly enough. So I'm looking forward to this. There's no country, by the way, that takes the Club World Cup more seriously than Brazil. So I'm reading tons of articles about it already. And the folks are looking at Real Madrid's indifferent form, which we're going to talk about in the next segment. Mm -hmm. And Flamengo is getting their hopes up that they think there's a chance here. Remember, the European club has won the last nine editions of this competition, 14 of the last 15. So you just go in assuming that they're going to win it. In this case, it would be Real Madrid. But Flamengo drawing strength from the fact that in 2019, when they were in this, they played Liverpool to a dead-even game. It was maybe the best performance I've seen from a Brazilian club in this competition. They ended up losing an extra time to a Roberto Firmino goal. But if they play like that here, I think they could give Real Madrid a real run for their money. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. Sure, sure. But but this is all this is all good stuff. These are all good things to to talk about. You know, you know, despite the struggles from a a year-long perspective of Seattle, this is still a good team. And you know, there was the burnout, if you will, from winning, uh, you know, from winning the championship, uh, you know, the CONCACAF uh, championship and then or CCL and then not being able to translate that into the MLS uh, situation. But now it's over. Last year from an MLS perspective is over and you reap the reward here, which is the opportunity. And yes, you represent Seattle, but you also represent Major League Soccer, and we, we want that to uh, happen. So I'll be looking forward uh, to that, too. Morocco's going to get a World Cup at some point, too. Well, they were finalists in I know, 26. I know, and... I know. They've always kind of been there and always been the, you know, the, the bridesmaids, but they are, they are doing big things when it comes to it. Um, okay, let's see. What else here? Uh, should we couple, move on to the LA Galaxy? A couple of MLS news items before we go. Uh, LA Galaxy supporters, not happy. Let me get the name of the supporters group. Is this the LA Riot Squad? Well, or? it's all of the LA uh, supporters group. So that would be the LA Riot Squad, the Galaxians, uh, Angel City Brigade, Galaxy Outlaws with a Z and the Ghost Ultra Galaxy all have come together and they released a statement and they're not happy. They're not happy with the direction of their club and in particular they're not happy happy with uh, Chris Klein, the leader of uh, the LA Galaxy for many many uh, years. And you know, I'm going to paraphrase this. You can go read it if uh, if you want given recent news regarding Chris uh, Klein's contract extension leadership 
of the LA Galaxy supporters groups have unanimously agreed not to attend matches until change in the front office is made. And, you know, they believe uh, that the front office practices have placed on-field business in higher importance than, uh, sorry, off-field business in higher importance than the on-field product. Knock yourself out. Go ahead. If that's what you believe uh, you need to do in order to make your point and to order, in order to get the product you as customers and consumers of the LA Galaxy uh, want and feel that you deserve, then fine. I don't know if this is ultimately going to have an effect on AEG, which is ultimately responsible for the Los Angeles Galaxy. I don't think that this is ultimately going to have an effect on uh, Chris, Chris Klein, who, as they mentioned, just signed a contract extension. It is, I don't think, a arguable point right now that the LA Galaxy, from a competitive standpoint, has not been what they once were. And that it comes in the face of the LA of LAFC, not only win, winning MLS Cup, but winning this LA soccer war that is going on here in our, our city, that highlights it e, uh, even more. You know, having said that, you know, I, I I asked on Twitter if there was you know a much more specific list of grievances, and I read through some of them. I'm not going to read through all of them. You can go check it out now. Um, out there online about, you know, they go through what has happened under Chris Klein from this club or what I get for, for them, what hasn't happened. And so, you know, I understand you're, you're angry. You are the market. The LA Galaxy has a product. This is a product that has been a premium product since, since its inception back in 1996, for the most part, notwithstanding my time at the Galaxy, leading the Galaxy. And you are looking at this product and you are saying, why should I, as the customer and the consumer, continue to uh, buy this product if the quality has suffered and you want change to happen? Again, I don't think this is going ha- to necessarily change anything, but you are going to make your point. I don't know if this is from an aesthetic point of view, is going to be a gaping hole in the stadium. I don't know if you are able to resell those tickets or if they're just not going to miss a beat. I don't know how much this is going to ultimately cut through the clutter. And so is this voice going to be heard? I appreciate it and I can respect that you are coming together as groups and making your voice voice heard and uh, having a protest in in this moment. You know, I just don't know how loud that voice and protest is going to be. But we have seen, certainly in recent times, where fans are coming together and they not only make their voice heard, but they affect change. You look at Super League and those types of things that are happening. So I don't know. We'll, uh, we'll see, Mossy. But part of me enjoys that there is this cooperation and understanding and passion and partnership uh, in order to have your voice, your voice heard. And part of me says, you know, it's soccer it's it's sports it's professional sports and this is all solved with winning and if it goes beyond actual winning i just want to know you know some more of the specifics as to uh, as to why because if this is ultimately all just solved by having a winning team this seems like a bit much yeah manchester United fans very quiet about the glazers right now so you notice winning <laughs> does tend to make of course. It, these issues of course. go away uh, they better retain Jovan Krasky, by the way. That's my ticket hookup. So <laughs> if nothing else, uh, last item, and then we'll wrap up this segment. It looks like Joseph Martinez is headed to Inter Miami. You might recall Gonzalo Guayin retired. So another South American star striker 
headed to that club. And it's look, I, I hope that he arrives in Florida with a renewed and rekindled fire. And but, you know, for Joseph Martinez, what it's been about is how how do we see the Joseph Martinez that we came to know and love? Because that guy, he checked out from an injury perspective a while ago, and he has not returned even close to that uh, to that form. So maybe uh, a new lease on life down there in uh, in southern uh, Florida for Inter Miami, and uh, I would love to see it because you know he is a legend when it comes to goal scoring in Major League Soccer. But that injury, you know, really changed him. Uh, as a player, but that he's not going anywhere else is kind of good to still have him here in Major League Soccer. And if he starts get if he starts going and scoring goals, you know we know once he gets that that smell, um, thing good things can happen. Anything else, Monty? That is it. All right, let's take another. Uh, let's take another. Let's take our first quick break here. That was a nice meaty segment right there. But we kind of covered a lot of things, so hopefully uh, you found them interesting. We'll take a quick break, and when we do come back, we'll dive into all the scores around you. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. All right, welcome back. All right, Mossy, all sorts of stuff going on over in Europe. Some incredible games, incredible goals, incredible drama. Where should we start? I mean, there's, there's so many things. Well, you said over in Europe. We'll actually begin in Saudi Arabia. Oh, okay. It's a, you know, it's an extension. I know what you Relative mean. to what's going on here. Uh, because that was <laughs> My the wife location. asked me, by the way, about this. Let's go ahead and explain it, and then I'll, I'll tell you what. Yeah, that's where the Spanish Super Cup now takes place. The final was this past weekend, a Clasico, Barcelona-Real Madrid. Barcelona victorious 3-1 to one in a game that was more lopsided than the scoreline. They dominated from start to finish. Gavi sensational, a goal and two assists. Lewandowski and Pedri also on the score sheet. Benzema scored with virtually the last kick of the game to dress up the scoreline a little bit. But this was an emphatic victory for Barcelona. Their first trophy under Xavi, their first trophy since Messi left. So there's some symbolic meaning there. You might recall they're atop La Liga right now, three points clear of Real Madrid. They did get knocked out in the group stage of the Champions League, which is a blight on this season and undercuts a little bit of this idea that Barcelona are back. But nevertheless, domestically, they're doing well. And I do like the way this team is playing. It was a very impressive performance this weekend. It was, it was an incredible performance. There was only one team on that field, by the way, in Saudi Arabia. And I mentioned my wife when I, when I told her that this was happening. She was like, well, why? Why are they there? I mean... She understands the business behind it, too, and the money involved, but also the global branding. And whether it's La Liga or anybody else, everybody is looking to plant flags around the world. And this is a wonderful opportunity for them to plant a flag. I'm sure to get paid a ridiculous amount of money to do so and to spread that gospel. We've seen what's happened in Saudi with uh, Cristiano and and all this uh, all this going on. But to outsource this major tournament game, and featuring two of the great teams in the world where the world does turn in a uh, tune in you know this was this was important for them but evidently real madrid didn't get the message that this was an important game because there like we said was only one team barcelona looked incredible gavi still a teenager is just so smooth and so clear with how he wants to play and again this and talk about something in the water 
you know, this incredible La Masia type of, uh, of production just continues to bear fruit. At the end of that game, when they were just playing keep away and oh. knocking it around, if you close your eyes, you would have thought you were watching Xavi and Iniesta, the way Pedri and Gavi and Busquets, who's obviously the link between these two generations. I mean, some of those triangles they were playing, one touch, boom. But I mean, they made Real Madrid look silly. Uh, and that's the flip side of the story. Cristiano Ronaldo, by the way, did visit Real Madrid ahead of this match. I don't think he went to the game. At least they didn't seem to show him at all. Uh, but this was another awful performance for a team that's not in good form right now. You're starting to hear the first murmurs of, was it a good idea to sell Casemiro? I know we got a great price for an aging player, but we could probably use him for some of these big games. Uh, Real Madrid have an important next few weeks coming up with La Liga games, Copa del Rey, the Club World Cup we mentioned. And then, of course, they face Liverpool in the Champions League round of 16. So they need to get themselves sorted. Yeah, I mean, the you mentioned Barcelona going out of uh, out of Champions League. Yeah, that is never good, no matter what the situation is here. But, you know, I do think that a lot of people looked at the game, this particular game against Real Madrid. And to your point, the reminder uh, and the reminiscence of what Barcelona once was and to almost see it playing out there in a new form, I think that that will give people... Yeah, I guess a, a renewed belief that this can be once again one of the shining lights with the identity that has lasted th uh, through the years because there was a question as to whether they were getting uh, getting away from that. So it couldn't have gone better for uh, Barcelona. And for, on the other side, Real Madrid is what they were ultimately. They were horrible. And Araujo makes such a difference at the back for Barcelona. What a player he is, the Uruguayan. Uh, speaking of Casemiro, uh, he was involved in a big game this past weekend as we shift to England. Manchester United, 2-1 winners over Manchester City. They come from behind to do it. Uh, just to get the elephant in the room out of the way, uh, I thought that United Equalizer was farcical. The PMOBGYN, whatever it's called, can put out whatever statements they want. Christina Uncle can say whatever she wants on Twitter. That was a shocking decision. Of course, Rashford is involved in that play. He ran right towards the ball. He lunged towards it. Of course, he affected the way the defenders and Ederson uh, approached that play. And then Bruno Fernandes comes out of nowhere and scores it. We've all seen that play a million times be ruled off sides. If the pass is right to somebody that's in an offside position and he runs towards it, they don't wait for him to touch the ball. They blow the whistle. And for whatever reason, this one, they didn't. So, But th this was also a wonderful illustration about how while we live in the age of VAR and technology, there is still a subjective nature in the, the way the laws are interpreted and the way the, the laws are implied on the field by the human beings. Because I absolutely agree with what you're saying. And I think a lot of like, there are a lot of like-minded people out there that look at that and say that you know, the, initial, the initial ball was clearly, and again, it's, it's subjective, I guess, but to me, it's clearly to Rashford Okay, that he doesn't touch it in the in the laws certainly checks some boxes there. But then when you go down to you know making an obvious action which clearly impacts on the ability of the opponent to to play the ball, you know then you get into even a moment there where you could argue that he was looking to take the shot and even drops his elbow, his shoulder at a certain point. So yeah, if that had stood as an offside, I don't think anybody would have complained, including. The, uh, the opposition, and that it didn't comes down to a subjective type of interpretation of this particular law that, that was made. And part of me is, is okay because sometimes I think we forget in this day and age of technology and, and, and VAR that there are still 
subjective decisions. And within those subjective moments, we now have debate. And I know people can, can scream and yell, but what was the initial um, complaint about what VAR was going to do? It was going to take all the debate out. It was just going to be clear, black and white. Well, that's not necessarily the case. In many instances, it is. But certainly in this instance, I think it gave us a needed reminder how there is a subjective nature and a gray area that still is part of our game. Now, maybe because of this particular play going forward, you know, they'll look to you know, snuff that out and make it much more clear as to what's, uh, what's going on. But this play dominated the game in terms of the talking points because it was so close, ultimately two to one. But don't let it take away from the fact that ultimately Manchester United gets a win and game on, Mossy, when it comes to the top of uh, the EPL. To give them some credit, I thought they defended brilliantly. Eric Ten Hag pushing all the right buttons. He starts Luke Shaw in the center of defense, and Shaw played very well. Holland barely touched the ball. For all of City's possession throughout the game, which you'd expect them to have the ball, uh, they created very little. De Gea had almost nothing to do. So uh, United, uh, they, like I said, I think is a little bit tainted because of the way that equalizer came about. But overall, I think it was a performance that still confirmed the progress that they've made. City in crisis or... Yeah, a little bit wobbly right now. Yeah, a little bit yeah. wobbly. I mean, look, and, I'm not going to cry for them, but, you know. And they're eight points back of Arsenal, who took care of Tottenham 2-0. Uh, impressive performance for the Gunners. Completely bossed the first half. Should have been up more than 2-0. Saka with this cross that Lloris somehow turned into his own net. A bit of a howler there. And then Odegaard, who is a player who left Real Madrid because he wanted to play regularly, and he didn't see a pathway to that in that midfield with Modric, Cruz, etc. And he was ripped by the Madrid media for showing a lack of ambition. He sort of stayed and fought for a place with Real Madrid. But this has proven to be a brilliant decision. He's gone to Arsenal where the whole team is built around him. Everything runs through him. And he's the star player now for a team that's leading the Premier League and looking like one of the best playmakers in the world. He scored a fantastic second and was terrific the whole game. Uh, the second half, uh, Tottenham improved, created some chances. Ramsdale came up big. But I think overall, Arsenal were good value for this result. They take the three points. Uh, do you want to talk about the game, or do you want to talk about what occurred at the final? No, let's list? first first talk about the game, and then we'll talk about the jackass. Um, okay, so look, first off, you are Lloris, okay? What is he doing? By the way, on both goals, okay? Because the Odegaard goal, that's from a long way out. It bounces a bunch of times. He sees ultimately where the ball is going, and he's still, and I know, I sometimes I'm hard on goalkeepers. You know, you, you can't live with them, and you can't throw them off a bridge, and they are a necessary evil, but save the ball. You are a quote-unquote world-class goalkeeper. You know, the first one, everyone's scratching their head. I don't know what he was thinking on that. It does take a deflection, and so maybe there's a little bit of forgiveness when it, uh, when it comes to a, a deflected type of cross that was just a hopeful smash across, and he somehow contrived to turn it into his own goal. And then the second one, I think he should ultimately do better. Having said that, Arsenal were phenomenal. And the, what is going to decide whether Arsenal can parlay this into the title is whether they truly believe that they deserve to be uh, where they are. And I know there's a lot of new faces and everybody's everybody's feeling feeling good. But unlike some other leagues where it's eight points right now uh, in the EPL, that should make it over. And yet there's still a sneaking suspicion in part of me that says that I don't quite believe yet that they are destined to win it. And I think you have to get to that point. Now, they might get to the point here uh, very soon, especially with Man City, uh, Man City uh, faltering. But 
I still don't think that this is ultimately uh, decided. Um, so anyway, uh, any final thoughts on the actual game before we turn it to uh, what happened after the game? Well, yeah, it's eight points clear of City, who face Tottenham on Thursday. Okay. And then there are nine points clear of United and Arsenal host Manchester United this upcoming weekend. So some great games coming up in the Premier League. We'll, we'll have a better idea of the uh, title race, where we stand. We'll, we'll look ahead to those games in our second pod of this week. Okay. But yeah, at, at the final whistle, first, uh, Richarlison, who was behaving like a complete clown the whole game. He was just looking for a fight. I don't right. know what was wrong with him. But he got into it with Ramsdale. And in, in Gabrielle, in trying to push Ramsdale away from Richarlison, pushes him towards the Tottenham fans. And then he gets kicked in the back by a Tottenham fan, uh, which set off a whole brouhaha there. Uh, what a mess. What, what a, a mess. mess huh? So first off, you know, kudos actually to the security, which saw, you know, yes, the security is there to protect the, uh, the players and to be looking into the audience, if you will, for any problems. But there's also things that can happen on the field. And one of the security guards actually turned around and was able to sp split the players because this was at the end of the game. And then, you know, it gets pushed off to the, the uh, you know, to, you know, to close to the fans that were behind the goal. And then this jackass comes out of the stands, okay, and, it, you know, attempts to kick him. Now, he didn't actually make contact because, again, the security guard actually had a really nice block of the, of the actual kick. It doesn't matter whether he, whether he connected or not. There was the attempt to kick by a fan who came out of the stands to kick the opposition goalkeeper. I mean, it wouldn't matter if it was his own goalkeeper or not, but... But but this was a situation where people were asking, well, why didn't they stop the guy from coming out? Keep in mind that we in the modern day and with modern stadiums right now actually err on the side of the spectators because of you know the horrific things that have happened in the past where spectators are pent in and up and aren't able to get through. Right now, from a security perspective and a safety perspective, they enable fans to come on the field if and when there is an emergency, but not in this manner, obviously. And look... It's a fine line because you want to give them the outlet and the safety to get on the field, but you also don't want to have a Monica Sellis type of situation where a fan comes on and poses a threat to uh, an actual player. This guy not only attempts to kick the goalkeeper, but then turns around and runs off like a little coward, okay? Now, they will have identified, because <laughs> there's cameras everywhere, and they will identify who this is, this person is and they will get banned for life and probably face you know some sort of crim, crim, uh, criminal action uh but this was this was you know ridiculous and again it kind of shows this and i know you can get caught up in the, the game and the emotion and there's alcohol involved and all that all, all that kind of stuff but this is beyond the pale and this is uh this is ridiculous and again this sense of entitlement that that fans at times have relative to buying a ticket or being a season ticket holder or being even just a fan of of the team that in that moment thinks that it is okay and appropriate for you to actually come on the field and then attempt to assault a player. By the way, the, goal, uh, the goalkeeper had his back to him too. So not only are you a coward for running off, but you're also a coward for trying to kick someone from behind. If you're going to kick me, kick me from the front. All right. And then stay there. And I wish he had stayed there. All right. He still would have been an asshole. But at least he, if he had stayed there and taking the beaten that he would have gotten and deserved, he wouldn't have been as much of a coward for running away. Well, you're fired up. Over this, it right? just it, it irritates me. 
Ron Artest vindicated. Fans are idiots. Hey, look, it, it, it goes both ways, by the way. You're also an asshole and an idiot and to a certain extent a coward if you're a player and you go up into the stands, too. So just stay where you're supposed to be, people. All right? All right, just to whip through some other scores from this weekend. Newcastle, 1-0 winners over Fulham, so they remain in the top four. Alexander Izak back from injury, scored a late winner. Fulham missed a penalty in this one. Mitrovic slips, the double kick. That was crazy, huh? I don't know. how. Why, why is that crazy, especially in this day and age? We are, we are able to see it. It is two touches, which we know is against the laws of the game, and they, they saw it, they judged it, and everything was fine. I don't know. I mean, we don't see it a whole lot. We have seen it in the past, but it was clear that he double kicked it there. And so, and, you know, he slipped it on the, on the run up. So, you know, maybe he should look at his footing and his, and his footwear. Chelsea with a much needed win over Crystal Oof. Palace, 1 0. Havertz with the goal. I mentioned in our opening segment, the young French defender Benoit Badiachil made his debut and played well. So, uh, much needed three points for Graham. Quick Potter. question Do you think that Potter is still the coach come the fall of 2023 at Chelsea? I do. It seems like Todd Bowley is going to plow through with him, right? Well, he's certainly given him enough money and players. Very quickly on Chelsea, you know, I'm the president of the João Felix fan club. Yes. I con I'm convinced that he's still an amazing talent that Diego Simeone just mishandled. And so he moves to Chelsea, makes his debut against Fulham, looks absolutely brilliant for 50-something minutes. So I'm and feeling then. vindicated. And then a shock challenge, a straight red, suspended for three games. So <laughs> a bit of a microcosm of the stop-start nature of his career. Right. Uh, so he did not play in this one because he's a red card suspension right now, but Chelsea get the win. Brighton hammered Liverpool 3-0. Klopp said this was uh, their worst performance since he got there in 2015. Liverpool have sunk to ninth. They're, they're actually level on points with Chelsea for all the talk about Chelsea's troubles. And this is all occurring against the backdrop, by the way, of stories that uh, John Henry might be ready to sell the club to Qatar. Mm -hmm. So Liverpool, who like to hold themselves up as the bastion of integrity and romanticism and, and look down on the Manchester cities and PSGs of the world, they might be going that route. There's some conflicting reports. We'll see what happens. Uh, but oh, wait, some hypocrisy and sanctimony in the world. What a, everyone's full of shit. Go ahead. We'll see. <laughs> and by the way, this is Brighton, Graham Potter's former club. When he left, a lot of people thought they would struggle. They hired this Italian coach, Roberto De Zerbi, and they've arguably played even better under De Zerbi. Graham Sunis was out there saying, this is a terrible appointment because this guy doesn't know the Premier League, you know, that sort of lazy line of thinking. And he's making the Graham Sunnises of the world look ridiculous because he's doing a phenomenal job. And Brighton are actually above Liverpool and Chelsea in the table right now. Uh Listen, Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately and all that? And, and certainly they've had injuries and they, they have problems when it, comes, uh, when it comes to Liverpool. And they are, like you said, possibly going through a, a change in ownership. So there is flux right now. And look, uh, Klopp is a legend. He has probably one of the longest leashes in the game. But at what point does he deserve more criticism than he is getting right now? you think we are at this point? I mean, is this is this on him? Well, it's on him because he's a head coach, but. He definitely deserves some of the blame. And, you know, this is right around the time where it went bad at Dortmund, seven Ooh, this years. This is the expiration date. So there's and, some talk that we might be reaching the Klopp expiration date here. We'll see. I mean, he'd still be a legend even if he went someplace else. But it might have just gotten stale. And he might look at it as to say, this is not necessarily going to get any better. And maybe I've done, already done my best work. And maybe a change is in order. Which wouldn't be 
the worst thing for him or for Liverpool. America's team, Leeds United, lost 2-1 away to Aston Villa. Tyler Adams continues to play well, but some criticism of Brendan Aronson. He's still sitting on one goal, the one mm-hmm. he scored way back against Chelsea early in the season, just two assists. I know Aronson's a player you can't only judge by goals and assists. He does a lot more. But there's a feeling that he's not playing that well. What do you think? You know, and, you know, these types of games against the Aston Villas, that's where you need to get points. You know, and when, when a couple of weeks ago when uh, they lost to Man City, I, you know, I, I said it doesn't really matter because that's not who you're supposed to be beating. But these are the types of teams where you have to find a, a way and ultimately he's going to be judged in. You know, from a Brendan Aronson perspective, you know, a, a season is long. And, and in particular, this season with the break of the World Cup is really, really unique. And, you know, they are going to demand more from, uh, uh, you know, from from these players. And I think we should demand more from, from Brendan Aronson. And not just in the scoring department, because your point, and I, I think people can see past that. Yes, they would want him to score more goals and be involved more I- in the attack. But he does, he does a whole lot more. I'd be more concerned if... He wasn't doing the things that make him great, which isn't just about scoring and being dangerous in the attack. As a matter of fact, you could even say that that is secondary relative to his work, uh, his work ethic, his smart runs, his ability to make himself available, and just his soccer intellect that helps people around him, even if you can't directly see how it impacts the game. Uh, the big game in Italy, Napoli demolished Juventus 5-1. Osimhen with two goals. Varazkeli with a goal and two assists. He's been the revelation in European football this season. What a player he is. So Napoli now... E basta. Ha finito. Ten points Stunt. clear of Juve and Inter. Stunt. Nine points clear of AC Milan, who drew Lecce this past weekend. So you think this is happening. Napoli are going to win their first Scudetto since 1990. Yeah. Give them the Scudetto now. It's, uh, it's done, and, and they've done it. You know. Yeah, I think, they're, I think it's over. And then in France, PSG suffered a 1-0 defeat away to Rennes. Uh, Messi and Neymar started this game, and Mbappe came on in the second half to no avail. So the gap, just three points there between PSG and Lens at the halfway point of the season. So Ligue 1 has some juice here. And Marseille only five points back in third place. You think PSG's worried? No. Well, they're a big concern. They have Bayern coming up in the Champions League round of 16, so they need to improve their form sure. before then. Sure, but I'm talking about their Ligue 1. No, I, mean, they're gonna I think they're going to be fine. Okay. Anything else? That is it. All right, let's uh, take another quick break. When we come back, it's time for Ask Alexi. And we got some calls and some tweets out there, I think. All right, don't go anywhere. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, welcome back, and it's time for Ask Alexi. You send us in those questions. Use that hashtag, Ask Alexi, out there on all the social media platforms. And keep in mind that our handle is uh, SOTU with Alexi out there on the social media platforms. You can, like I said, use that hashtag, Ask Alexi, or you can call us on our State of the Union podcast hotline, 657-549-2297. That's 657-549-2297. You can see it right here in the wall if you are watching the pod uh, here. Okay, Mossy, uh, we got some voicemails, right? Yep, let's hear the first one right now. Hi, Alexi. Hi, Mossy. This is Smitty from Shelton, Connecticut. My question is, after the third round of group games at the most recent World Cup, 
FIFA has to scrap these groups of three for the 2026 World Cup. There's no way they can do that. However, how does the format work with 12 groups of four teams and presumably 24 teams advancing from the group stage into a playdown? How do you see that happening? And uh, I love the show and look forward to your answer. Have a great day. All right. All right. So there's uh, there's Smitty with a, a good question about 2026 and one that has yet to be decided. Uh, we're going back and forth and FIFA has yet to you know, announce and clarify as to what it's going to look like. Other than we are going to have 48 teams, Mossy. And in my Rutgers education, when I break this all down, uh, 12 groups of four. But if you just take the top two out of that, then you're going to have some problems because you have 24 teams and in a round of 16, that doesn't quite uh, work out. And so ultimately, how are you going to figure this out? Now, keep in mind, in the past, when we have been less than 32 teams and this type of situation, mathematical situation has come up, what uh, they have done to solve this is keep the groups of four, but have the best third place teams from a certain amount of groups, ultimately to make it even to be able uh, to be able to do this. Um, we don't know what's going to happen, Mossy. What do you suggest first off happens? Because I think that they are going to go still keep groups of four and not mess with that historical type of thing that we have seen. And then I think they're going to go best third places or possibly buys. I don't know, but best third places probably. As you know, I'm a staunch critic of the 48-team World Cup. But yes. My argument has never been dilution of quality. It's been the format. I thought the format they were proposing, 16 groups of three, was preposterous. So I'm glad to hear they've moved off that. And I'm eagerly awaiting to see what they land on. But I fundamentally think 48 is a weird number to come up with a coherent format. So 12 groups of four would be better, I suppose. And then, like you said, I think the only way that works is if you take the top two from each group and the eight best third-place finishers, then you're playing an entire group stage just to whittle it down from 48 to 32, and then you begin a knockout stage from there. I guess that's probably the most sensible way to go at this point. Is it? Or, or you say, listen, all I hear about Mossy is how tired players are and how difficult it is, okay? And the games come fast and furious, even in a, in a World Cup, and it's very difficult. Or you say, you give people buys, all right? So the best first-place finishers, you have them sit out, and so they actually sit out that round that then gets played, and then they come back in in the next round. I think that's what they're going to do. What you do you might think? be right. What if only 16 advance the group winner from each of the 12 and groups, then the best and then just the four best second let's add some real juice to the group Ooh, stage really yeah that could be interesting you know now keep in mind when you start messing with the groups either down to three or the first or, or the first team coming out even in your scenario when it is a group groups of four it changes the the philosophy and the strategy that has been in place for so many years when we talk about you know it's the the percentage that come out at winning their first game and stuff like that. So I don't have a I don't have a specific answer for you, Smitty, as to what's going to happen. And I think there's a lot of curiosity as to what it's going to look like because then when and the sooner the better. Because I think you need to have people prepared mentally and I think strategically on how you are going to approach the group stage, whatever that may look like when you are a team going forward. So I think they need to come to a real quick 
and decisive type of moment where they say, this is going to this you know, rip that mandate. If it's going to be crazy stuff in groups of three, rip that mandate. If it's going to, it's obviously it's going to have to be different, but the sooner the better, because I think it's important to have people prepared, not just fans, but also the actual teams. You could see why they're messing with this because the last couple of World Cups were so horrible. I mean, clearly the current oh, format yes. wasn't it's, working. It's this, this was a solution in search of a problem, as I keep saying. Uh, no, this is not, okay? And so when that person, all right, is standing up there and you're watching it on team, TV, Mossy, and that young man is putting his hand over his heart, okay? And he is singing that national anthem and there's tears streaming down his cheek because he has been given the opportunity because of FIFA's foresight, because they said, you know what? We are not going to be as elitist as we have been in the past. We are going to actually be inclusive. We are going to invite people in and have some teams and therefore have some young men that are able to sit up there and represent their country that in the past they wouldn't have been able to do. You're going to scream and yell? No, you're going to sit there and say, okay, I get it. I understand this is a wonderful moment that that person will not ever forget and his countrymen will never forget. Go ahead, Moss. Incidentally, I did finally watch the FIFA Netflix documentary. Did you? Yeah, so, um, like I said, it's just a good reminder of the ridiculousness. Uh, let's move on to the next uh, voicemail. Okay. Hey, Alexi. Hey, Mossy. This is Evan from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Big union fan here, and I love the podcast week in and week out. I just have a question that may have an, an, an easy answer, but soccer is still continuing to grow in North America, where we have just got out of a World Cup, and we'd like to see our boys continue to get better and better from here on out. My question is for you guys, why do they continue to put a paywall between us and watching games? How does this benefit from helping the sport and the U.S. men's national team grow as a whole? I believe that this should be available to all eyes no matter what. And thanks for all you guys do and appreciate your work. Have a good day, guys. Okay, good question there, uh, there Evan. And this is you know, uh, on topic in terms of what people are talking about in the uh, soccer world right now. By the way, a follow-up to last week, because I had mentioned that with the new deal that the United States Soccer Federation has done with TNT, uh, with Turner and with um, HBO Max to show the U.S. women's national team and the U.S. Uh, men's national team games, including the upcoming two games that the U.S. women's national team have in New Zealand that we talked about at the top of the show. You know, I talked about this, this situation here where the games that are going to be on HBO Max, there is a question as to the ability to show those in a group setting in a bar and therefore fan fests and um, uh, you know, American Outlaw uh, parties. I've tried to get some clarity and they, they, still <clears throat> they still have not figured this out, but I want to be clear as to what the, what the question is right now. So for example, if, um, if you want to show a game that is on HBO Max right now in a bar type of setting, you have to buy you know, a pretty expensive package. You can buy that and you can do that. That gives you the right uh, to do that. Some bars just don't want to do that as opposed to showing you know, a game that's on Fox or something like that where you just throw it on the television and, uh, and, off, and off you go. This is a work in progress. This is a new partnership. They will have figured some things out ahead of time, and they're going to have to think, figure out some things in real time. This is one of those things. And I am told by the United States Soccer Federation that they are working on a solution, an equitable type of solution, to make sure that they are, uh, to, uh, to Evan's point, continuing to spread the gospel out there and get as many people to watch this as, uh, as possible, also with the business uh, that they are uh, that, that they are in. So that's that part of it, and that and I'll follow up if I get any more information going out. But this is not going to change anytime soon, including in these next two games with the U.S. Um, 
the women's team. So if you want to watch the game on HBO Max in a bar setting, that bar will have had to have bought the package and the expensive package in order to do that if you want to watch the U.S. women's national team. As it, as it relates to his question here, look, this is, I don't know how old you are, Evan, but I appreciate you thinking about a world bigger than yourself, okay? And while you and I think your generation, and I know I'm, you know, I'm, I'm guessing here, are certainly adept um, and able to function in a world behind paywalls and a world of streaming, not everybody is. And it's, you know, evident in the numbers. However, the world is going towards that. And you, Evan, and your generation are incredibly coveted by those out there that want to sell you stuff, whether it's subscriptions or actual ads uh, out there. And so this is going to be easier and easier in terms of people finding it and people being comfortable with this type, uh, this type of scenario. This was thought about ahead of time in terms of going behind paywalls. And this is an argument and a discussion that happens time and time again because of the streaming world in which we live in and the paywalls that exist uh, now. I don't know about you, Mossy, but it, it was all a, a bunch of malarkey as was once said in terms of the cord cutting and uh, the ease and the cost relative to what was traditional in terms of your, your cable box. We're right back where we started. And as a matter of fact, probably at times even paying more with all of the different services, the streaming services that you have out there or that you need out there if you are a fan, uh, a fan of the game. So I don't know if this is going to hinder either, I know you were talking about the United States and the U.S. men's national team, if this is going to hurt and hinder the game going forward because it is one more obstacle and one more difficulty and challenge for a certain group out there in order to find this. And by the way, this also applies to Major League Soccer with the, uh, with the Apple deal that they have, or as I said last week, where they are seeing around the corner and they are recognizing that there is going to be a generation that dies off, that can't find it or won't find it or doesn't want to find it. And you will be left with people that will no more look at Apple or HBO or anything else uh, any differently in a terms of a broadcast platform that they look at Fox or, uh, or anybody else out there in a much more traditional type of sense. And it will just all be, this is where I'm going to watch. And how they ultimately get there, by the way, will become much easier going forward. And people will find a way, and they've already have uh, in, in some in some areas found a way to coalesce all of these different streams and uh, and platforms that we have. And it'll just all be right back to where we started, where it'll just be one type of won't be an actual box, but it'll be a virtual box that we just pick our channels, and they're coming from whatever platform that it ends up being. But I like that you're thinking about this, and in, I don't want less people to watch the game. I want it to be available and easily available to as many different people as possible. But I also recognize the business behind these decisions and the long-term business plan and the technology involved that uh, that goes on with these types of decisions. So good questions there. Anything else, Mossy? That is it. All right, uh, we're gonna take another quick break. And when I come back, I'm gonna have my one for the road. So don't go anywhere. All right, welcome back, and it's the end of our show, and uh, at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road. Uh, Mossy, 
you know, I was out in uh, Philadelphia, and uh, as I as I mentioned, with was with a lot of soccer people, and obviously the big story and the talking point and what everybody wanted to talk about was, you know, the continued saga and soap opera that is, you know, the Reinas and the Burhalters and everything that's going on. By the way, nothing has changed since we last spoke. If and when it does, we will certainly uh, certainly bring it up, but it is spurred a another discussion and a deeper discussion and an ongoing discussion in the in the soccer world and i guess in the greater sports world out there about the situation and the climate that exists out there when it comes to moms and dads and this is nothing new i mean you can go back to todd marinovich and stuff like that but how they interact and act as parents of athletes and in some cases elite athletes and look there are now stories coming out i guess you'd call them horror stories but it's in an effort to show that this is while this is an extreme situation when it comes to the reinas and the burhalters it's not necessarily new in terms of moms and dads poking their nose into places where you feel they shouldn't be and overstepping and overreaching when it comes to the influence and the impact that they have with their player and their player's situation in teams and with coaches. For example, John Hackworth, former U.S. uh, under-17 coach, uh, on his experience coaching his son's youth team. And this is a guy who's been in it all. I mean, you know, I'm going to quote him. He says, in between games, I had a mom go ballistic on me because her son didn't start in a game. I do think that it, and he's talking about this, uh, this phenomenon of helicopter parents and, and moms and dads injecting themselves into the sports landscape that their, that their kids inhabit, uh, that it is more comp- commonplace in this country. And the reality is that it is problematic. Okay, I, I, I get that. I don't, again, I don't think that this is necessarily something new. I think that anybody that has ever coached at any level at some point has had a parent come and, again, overstep the bounds there. And you know, sometimes it's a civil and respectful type of disagreement. And sometimes it's probably some shouting. We have created a situation where the stakes are either high or the perception is they are incredibly high. And from a very, very young age. And that probably is where it has changed the most in that the vision and the belief and at times the hope and the dream from a very, very young age has come into play that little John uh, or little Julie are going to be, you know, the next Christian Pulisic or the next uh, Alex Morgan or, you know, insert your player there. And that that game and that moment is going to define them and is going to steer them in one direction or the other and the course is going to ultimately dictate whether they do become these, in, uh, these incredible stars. We talk about specialization, uh, and we talk about from a very young age, players playing at quote-unquote an elite level and being talked about and groomed, if you will, to be elite athletes so that then they can you know, have a better chance at going to college and getting a better scholarship. That in, its, in and of itself is not necessarily... Uh, anything new. But it's easy to say it's problematic and we should change. But I don't know what the, the answer is other than having parents 
that have perspective and that understand that while we all want to protect our children and we all want to support our children, injecting yourself into a situation like that actually hurts them. It hurts them in the eyes of their peers. It hurts them in their in the eyes of their coaches. But it also, it doesn't help them not to fail. It doesn't help them not to at times be in difficult and uncomfortable situations, even at a young age. And again, I'm all for supporting. And I want my kids to know that I support them. But in no way, shape, or form would I ever think it is my place <laughs> to go up and scream and yell at a coach uh, or disagree with a, uh, with a coach. You have put them in positions of leadership and, and power and authority to make those decisions. And if you want to coach, go ahead, you coach. But if you don't want to, let the coaches do what they want to do. And I, look, I know it's easier said than done and emotions get involved and, uh, and, uh, and you go forward. But it was interesting to be around so many coaches this week this weekend in, uh, in Philadelphia at the coaches convention. And I know that that was on their minds and they, I think they used it as a jumping off point to talk more about ultimately what a coach's role is and time and time again. And this actually, I, I was heartened coming out of Philadelphia because time and time again, there was the echoing and the, you know, the affirmation that as a coach, as a soccer coach, even as an elite soccer coach of elite players, your responsibility goes well beyond making them better soccer players. And I think that they take that to heart. And in an already difficult type of situation, when parents make it even more difficult <clears throat> by injecting themselves into the situation, it's a recipe, it's a recipe for disaster. And so the training is needed. The understanding is needed. The perspective is needed from a coaching perspective to be able to deal with that. And the best coaches make it very, very clear before their season or their time with these players start as to what is expected out of their uh, the parents and what is tolerated and what is not tolerated uh, going forward. And if you don't like the way somebody is coaching, if you don't like the situation that you have put your child in, and in many cases they are children, and take them out and go someplace else. Anyway, Mossy, anything to say before we go? No, let's get out of here. Oh, one more thing before we go. You know, in thinking, and this applies to the thing that we just talked about. Again, we still don't have any clarification or understanding or, or further understanding about what the, the coaching search is when it comes to the U.S. men's national team, where Greg Berhalter stands. But I was talking to someone uh, in Philadelphia about this. There's a part of me now that has gone the way, the way of thinking that I actually want Greg Berhalter named as the head coach. Not because, and as you know, this goes against everything I believe in in terms of multiple cycles. But this is where my sadness that I talked about last week has turned into anger. I am angry that Greg Berhalter is going to be denied the opportunity, even though I don't think that you should continue for multiple cycles, that is ultimately going to be denied this opportunity for what has ultimately happened to him. I think it is BS, and I think it is unfair. And I have come to the point 
where I am actually advocating for not letting that win, not letting that happen is the best course and saying, no, we are not going to let something like that take down a good man and deny him an opportunity. If he was in consideration for the U.S. men's national team coaching job, and by all accounts he was, whatever that percentage was, I hope to God that it hasn't changed. I think it probably has, and that not only saddens me, as I said before, but that angers me. But I don't, I don't want that to win. And in order for it not to win, there has to be a stand taken. And that, and that stand, as crazy as it sounds to me, is naming Greg Berhalter as the head coach. And so I don't think that anybody's going to listen to me. I don't think that that is ultimately uh, going to happen. But that's where I find myself here on this Monday, January 16th. Well, you saved your juiciest take for the end of the pod. All right, we'll see if people listen. We'll see if people listen all the way through. You know, we it, it's important that you listen. It's even more important that you listen all the all the way through. Any fans of the pod in Philadelphia? Oh, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. Everybody kept coming up and asking me um, about you. First off, wondering if you were there, and I had to disappointment uh, disappoint them and say that you weren't there. But I bring back incredible tidings and well wishes and thanks and love from the masses out there that came up and said that they listened to the State of the Union uh, podcast. So it, it warmed my heart, but also um, you are, and this is nothing new, you are an incredible um, star and the people have recognized and they love you out there. Uh, we were talking off the air about this. I'll say it on the air. In our last pod in Doha, <laughs> you went on this whole spiel about how great I am, how everybody loves me, and I did not return the favor and say anything nice about you. And my mom gave me a tongue lashing for that. Oh, that, that's that's not necessary. It's just implied. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, I, I uh, that's that's very nice of you. All right, listen, we've uh, we've gone a little bit long here. I say that every week. We don't really go necessarily that long. These are kind of pretty uniform in terms of we try to keep it. And producer Sean is pretty good at keeping us in uh, in line. Pretty good, not not great, but he's pretty good. When at he shows us up. In line. So, all right. So uh, we will talk to you again uh, later on in this week for our second pod of the week. As as Mossy mentioned, we'll preview what's coming up on the weekend. And who knows? We might have some more news uh, going forward when it comes to all the different stories that we have talked about. Um, um, or uh, who knows, some new stories that we might uh, might want to talk about. Again, our, our State of the Union podcast hotline, as always, 657-549-2297, 657-549-2297. Use the hashtag AskAlexi. Continue to uh, rate and review and subscribe and download and do all of those things. As I've mentioned before, we're getting incredible numbers, uh, not just uh, you know in terms of experiential things like uh, being in Philadelphia and talking to everybody, but the actual data, the hard data uh, over there and the science of it, if you will, is telling us that uh, a lot of people are uh, tuning in and uh, we couldn't be happier. It makes us incredibly um, proud to be able to do it uh, each and every week, a couple times each and every week. So we'll see you uh, and we'll talk to you later on this week. And until then, and as always, my friends, size the day. <laughs>